0: Well, hello again everyone. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. Great to see you again here, Philip. And today we're going to be talking about coffee, tea, individualism, and the difference that Christianity makes. And if you want to know how all that's going to fit together, then uh, you'll have to wait just a few minutes.
1: We need to have a bit of a caffeine hit first.
0: All right. <laughs> before we go. No, first, before we get on to those important topics, uh, there's some questions and comments that have come in. And... To start off with, there's one particular question that we actually recorded an answer to several weeks ago, but it just didn't fit into that episode. There was just too much. So I've kept it to one side, and we're going to play it now, the question and answer. So you don't have to do anything. I'm just going to play the question and answer we've already recorded. That's fantastic, isn't it? This is is an easy podcast today. It's about individualism in a sense. It's about how individuals are cared for in a congregational ministry. So in the podcast we did about elders and so on and the role of pastors and counselling, we had this idea that the pastor seeing his role as a counsellor, whose job it was to solve everyone's individual problems, was a a mistaken idea, a mistaken way of thinking about pastoring. And that raised the question, well, does that mean pastors don't care about individuals? Because my pastor doesn't need to hear that. He doesn't care enough as it is. So um, how does the individual care and pastoring work with the role of the pastor elder? And you gave this answer.
1: There's several aspects of that, isn't it? One is the sheer size of the congregation. What the pastor does in a congregation of 50 people And what a pastor does in a congregation of 500 or a congregation of 5,000 is going to be very different. And some, some allowance needs to be made for the growth of congregational life. Because if you insist on having the same relationship with your pastor of 500 that you used to have with him when the congregation only had 50, or frankly, the congregation will never grow to 500. You'll be actually one of the people who's stopping the congregation growing because only a small church could allow for the intensity of relationship that comes from a pastor of a small church. So that's one topic. There are others though. The congregation is a flock. The congregation is a family. And what we're saying is that he must care for a family if he doesn't care for his own family how can he care for the family of god and so caring for the family is very different to middle management organization and when we analyze church in terms of business organizational structures and many church growth manuals etc do it in terms of business organization we're actually changing the nature of church Church is family, and families are not best run as business organisations. Now, a big family of 500 requires particular skills, but I think it mostly requires more pastors.
0: It seems to me that's the case. If we're thinking functionally about what pastors do and how they relate to the congregation and what the congregation does, as it grows and shifts and changes... The way you organize yourself so that there are people who are caring for those who are in trouble or sorrow or need or sickness or any other adversity, as the old prayers put it, that structure will change and need to change. You can't have one pastor who's looking over that size group of people, but that there needs to be people who are watching, caring. Uh, And when there are crises of life, particularly caring, that seems to be part of what it means to be the household of God.
1: Yes, quite right. And if he is really pastoring well, part of his pastoral task and pattern will be to help organise the family with units of care, with the uncles, the cousins, the brothers, because in the end we've all got to minister to each other. And so training by modelling and teaching, the care of the members is an important element. And this is I think been the wonderful development in the late 20th century and still continuing here into the 21st century of small group ministries of the pastor of the congregation as a whole, working at recruiting training and assisting the house group leadership, the small group leadership to actually care for the individual membership so that every member of the congregational life and every new member joins in with the church, has a network of people who for whom they can care and who will be caring for them, who are only really one or two steps away from being cared for by the pastor if the need be. There are some issues which are beyond the training that pastor can give to a home group leader for which the pastor may need to be called upon. But you're only doing what Moses did at Jethro's advice in Exodus, that, you know, there are difficult cases for which they must appeal to Moses, but in the normal cases, there are the 70 elders who will be looking after the congregational life. But that's part of a pastor caring for his congregation. But then there's a third other topic that I think that we're saying here, and that is that, yes, if a congregational pastor is caring for his congregation, it does mean that he will care for the individual. And so there are moments at which he will leave the 99 and go find the one and bring them back into the flock. And I think we said that the other day. I can understand the questioners, coming possibly from congregational situations where they feel unloved. And I'm sorry if you do feel unloved and uncared for, because it is important that all members, especially the little and unimportant members in this world's terms, are actually cared for. But it can also be, if I may, Be so bold as to suggest a possibility that we have unrealistic expectations of what that care will look like, and that the important way to find love is to give it. The more you give love, the more you'll find it. The more you seek love, the less you'll find it. I admit that there are many times when there are ministers who are not as loving and as caring for individuals as possibly they should be. But life is hard, and the work of ministry is not simple.
0: I think also it's possible, in a kind of ironic way, the desire or expectation that a single pastor will have this relationship with all his sheep and be able to have that individual personal counselling kind of helping caring role with every single person in a way also partakes of a of a very particular institutional or structural view of how churches should be organized, that they should be not too big and have one pastor who can have that role with every person, and that once you get past that size, it's no longer the kind of structure or church that that I want to be part of, whereas if we're saying that, that ministry is is not as structurally tight as that. You can't put all your eggs in one structural basket. As ministry grows, as as we pray and hope through the work of the Spirit and the Word, it does. Different kinds of structures and forms of caring need to be evolved as, as things grow, if we want them to grow. So in some ways, sometimes the desire for the pastor to be the one who comes to visit me and help me is in itself a kind of, it's kind of captive to a particular form of structure we have in our minds as to what church must be like. Yes, and it fails to use the, the
1: diverse gifts of the congregation. Yeah, exactly. Because there are certain people who will be able to help you with your particular issue, uh, and the pastor may not be able to. There are certain friendship relationships, encouragements that will come from one personality and one gift structure, one uh, abilities, that you can't expect every pastor to have every capacity for every situation of life but i don't think the church requires that if he is encouraging the leadership of the congregation as a whole who are encouraging all the members to care for each other then he is caring for the individuals but to ask him to have every answer for every individual situation in the congregation Well, I just think it's ultimately a failure to recognize God's generous provision of gifts.
0: Now, before we get on to today's topic, a couple of more things in the questions and comments category. The episode we did a few weeks ago about singing, especially about how the congregation is the choir and how theologically, as Reformed evangelicals, that's how we should think about congregational singing. We should think of them as the choir. That Perhaps understandably, provoked a few questions and no, comments. Really? Yes, Music really. Causing <laughs> division? I can't believe it. Can't believe it. We had some great emails, and I'm just gonna read a couple of them. John, for example, wrote in, and this was similar to a couple of other emails we have, um, to say this. Essentially that agreed with our point, of course, the congregation is the choir, and you can overpower the congregation with volume and with a the wrong theology of what you're doing. But he thought in, in rushing to make that point, we overlooked a whole series of other problems that are just as important, if not more important, in congregational singing and why congregations don't sing. And how about I just read some of what John says. Good. Uh, I visit many churches, he says, and I see many reasons why people are not singing. For example, I recently was at a church where two women were leading the singing. One had a guitar. It seemed as if neither of them had rehearsed or practiced. They were poor singers. She struggled to play the guitar. The song choices were poor. And I wasn't even sure whether the congregation knew them, but even if they did, they were hard to sing. And there was no explanation about why we should sing or what the theme was behind the song. Why would that make it difficult for singing? (laughs) You put all those things against singing. Is there any wonder that the singing is poor? So the songs are poorly led. They're too high, he says. Sometimes songs are full of theological jargon or strange kind of phrasing that the common person doesn't know. Whether it's the kind of more common, everyday, modern sort of jargon or um,
1: washed in the blood we're all washed in the blood what
0: does that mean for the average newcomer yes or when we sing come thou fount of every blessing which has the word vow yes. th- in it ebenezer here the, i raise my ebenezer here i
1: raise my ebenezer <laughs> every sunday that i sing that i have to go back to the dictionary and look up what the ebenezer was again <laughs> so that
0: doesn't help and even in some of our favorite classics like rock of ages cleft for me cleft is not a word that the modern person understands and so uh John's mentioning, there's all sorts of reasons why our singing is also not as, as good as it could be. And much of, the, much of it has to do with putting time and energy into, into rehearsal, into practice, into thoughtfulness, into training musicians, thinking about songs. And especially, he says, the songs we sing are often too complex. Um, I am not a good singer, he says, and I find it so difficult to join in the singing sometimes, even when there is a minimum of singers and instruments like we're calling for. It's because the songs are so difficult. And so um, John makes some excellent points there, really, that just complement the kind of things we were saying. Don't disagree with that at all, John. There's all sorts of reasons why congregational singing doesn't work. Uh, Volume is not the only one. Uh, In fact, you can have churches where there's a bit of volume happening from the front, and if all these other things are in play and the congregation has the heart to sing, there'll still be good singing. But so long as we think that the congregation is the choir and we're thinking, what can we do to help the congregation sing, if that's our criteria, then things can be better. Yep.
1: And John shouldn't
0: hang around those churches too much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's another comment, quite a similar one in some way, from Brian in Tassie, who says that uh, when he arrived at the church they're currently at, the singing was extremely poor uh, and bedraggled. Uh, The congregation kind of muddled along. And... Um, What made the difference was a couple of people, his wife and himself, who had some musical training and who could lead simply from the front, provide some enthusiasm and some backup. And now, a few years later and down the track, we have a congregation who all sing with gusto and are able to join in with the singing. I think one of the
1: most important bits of that is, he says, with enthusiasm. Hmm enthusiastic leaders will always make progress for the congregation.
0: Indeed. And so he says, I hear what you're saying, Tony, about only needing a conductor, but perhaps you need a little more than that for congregations to actually join in and enjoy the singing. And um, I think that's a fair point. In sort of wanting to scale back from these huge bands and their massive volume that overpowers, Mm. I'm saying a choir doesn't need much, but it does need something. And depending on your context, of course, you need that which is going to help the congregation sing. So thanks for those questions and comments and do keep them coming. We love hearing from you and we do say questions or comments. Um, Both of those emails were more in the way of comments than questions and we really love receiving those as well because you can only say so much in a podcast and we're only fairly fallible kind of people. So hearing your comments and corrections and amplifications and extra ideas is always very helpful. So thank you for that. But Philip, today I want to talk about the fact that the other day you accused me of being a coffee snob. Which you are. Well, of course. But what's wrong with being a coffee star? I like my coffee a certain way. So what's wrong with loving my coffee just the way I like it?
1: Well, because it's antisocial. You're not drinking coffee with me. You just happen to be drinking coffee at the same time as me. I see. But you can have your coffee and I can have my coffee. Yes, we can do that if we like. But wouldn't it be better to share our coffee? You
0: mean from the one pot or something like that? Yes. Well, we could do that.
1: That is how traditionally our community drank tea, drank coffee. We had things called pots and you had a teapot and everybody shared of it because no one was more important than anybody else and nobody's taste was held as so significant. And, well, it was good just to drink the common drink of everybody. A common cup, you might say. Yes, although with a common cup you have the trouble of transferring germs. A pot doesn't do that.
0: Quite so. So you're saying that something has changed in the way that we drink coffee now from how you remember us drinking coffee.
1: Well, how I still drink coffee. From but a pot. If, if I get a chance to, yes.
0: Would the same be true of tea? But, but
1: Oh, absolutely. But, you know, you go to a shop and there's huge queues waiting for the coffee because everybody has to, the barista has to make it, He's not a coffee maker, he's a barista. He has to make it, or she has to make it, separately for each individual. And so we all stand around waiting in our isolated frustration, waiting to be able to drink our own coffee our own way.
0: It's terribly antisocial. And as I was saying, I guess just to defend the coffee snobs from being no different from the tea snobs, we... We always used to drink tea from a pot as well, and some yes. of us still occasionally do. But now we have thirty-seven different varieties of tea bags, and we all have our own particular lemon ginger with a with a twist of cranberry that we have for our tea uh, in much the same sort of fashion. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's it's got to do with wealth and affluence. It's got to do with snobbery. So, what's wrong with each individual person? having what each individual person wants. Surely well, that's kind of just freedom. I don't think it's the essence of uh, sin, but when you say it
1: like that, it's the essence of freedom, it's not so different from the word autonomy,
0: which is a word for sin. So you're saying the, the individualism of how we consume our coffee, want our coffee to be just the way it is, go to quite some trouble, spend a lot of money on machines and on individual coffee. In one sense, and I'd like to say it's an improvement in coffee. You would. And it is. It's, I'm sorry, it's not a matter of opinion. The coffee is just <laughs> objectively vastly superior than the muck that used to be served out of pots years ago. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that it, it indicates a, a fracturing of our culture and society into an individualism that's different from when you all shared coffee from a pot. Why do we eat meals? So from coffee to meals, well, we eat meals to uh, to satisfy our hunger. Yes,
1: and that's the point. That's what you call a teenage boy who stands in front of the fridge. When you ask him a question, he grunts because you're interfering with his grazing from the fridge. Indeed. The reason for a meal has to do with fellowship. So people say, oh, well, I have a coffee with you. But when you get there, you don't have a coffee with him. You have your coffee. I have my coffee. And so we're really not actually sharing a coffee. And so when we have a meal... We all sit down, I read my newspaper, you read your telephone, and we, we, at the same time, got the television in the background. And so the very essence of of sharing together has been lost. Yes, food is consumed, but that can be done by the teenager in front of the refrigerator.
0: So the point you're making, if I understand it, is that our technological progress and the explosion of options we now have In every single facet of our lives, there are products and services that we can individually choose and adapt to our personal preferences and wants, that this individualized consumption of technologically provided options actually drives us apart and destroys something valuable, which is community, it's relationship. So individualism plus technology is pulling us apart. Uh,
1: You could put it that way, yes, that's part of it. A fascinating set of words that you use there. Opportunity and materialism, it's got to do with wealth, it's got to do with technology. The economists call it opportunity cost. You know, you choose one thing, but in the choosing of it, you forego several other things that you don't even notice necessarily you're foregoing them because, well, you're making a choice. And so I choose to watch this particular show on my streaming service. At the same time, I'm choosing not to sit with other people and watch their show, or indeed go out with the whole society to a picture theatre and watch it together. Uh, we're, We're just doing my own thing. And I'm choosing against other things... I'm foregoing opportunity costs that I don't even notice that I've done. But it's not against technology itself. The technology's improved our lives. In just so many ways, it's hard to count. I mean, the world we live in is already different from the world I grew up in, different to the world my parents or my grandparents lived in. You you don't have to go very far back in history. You know, I can remember the dial-up. Which was what the nineteen nineties
0: when you dial into the your uh, bulletin board with your modem and that's got kind that of funny thing. squeaky noise yes, that yeah. kind of. But that's just twenty years ago. We're talking thirty years ago that that
1: happened, and now the kind of fantasy of a Dick Tracy cartoon where he had on his wrist a watch that could communicate with the world. Well, that's not a fantasy. That's just what these people take for granted now.
0: It's interesting, though, that the rise of technologically driven consumerist society, the kind of society we live in, in one sense, it's part of the whole Enlightenment liberal project. It's it's what the last 150 or 200 years of Western culture has been like and about. It's been about... Freeing the individual to be healthy, to be well, to have enough to eat, to pursue personal happiness.
1: Uh, no, I don't think it has been. I don't think it has been to free the individual. I think it's been to give to humanity those things that you're mentioning. But the side consequence of it is individualism. See, we want more people to be fed, we want fewer people to die of starvation. We want all people to be able to live out their three score years and 10 but the process of doing it has has focused on
0: individualism i think the two are, are closely connected I, I don't think the modern technological project started with a group of people in, the, in a room saying how can we feed more, how can we feed the world how can we do some great thing for humanity it started with people seeing opportunities to provide make more money, make more money to provide something that people wanted or needed and in so doing to make profit and the reason you would invest in in creating this new technology and was that it would do something for people that they couldn't do before yes. and that would make me money and that was that's how the whole modern free market liberal economy works by having incentives for people to invest, to innovate, to compete with each other, to find better ways of doing things, to solve problems people have, to provide something that solves a problem someone has or a want that someone needs, you stimulate a whole economy of people doing this. But
1: in the process, you concentrate on individuals.
0: Exactly. In the end, it becomes how can we funnel down to meet ever more precise individual needs and wants and find new markets by persuading people that you now need... Your own tea bag, yes, rather my,
1: than well, my streaming service or my uh, the newspapers, etc. That they are paying attention to what it is that I'm watching, so as to be able to tell me other things that I would like to watch. I may say they nearly always get it wrong, but they still have this idea that in the thousands upon thousands
0: of people who are on their streaming service. They are serving me individually. Now, as you were saying, it's good that we recognise that the growth in technology, as tied up with individualism as it is, has been of enormous benefit to countless individuals. Uh, The statistics are extraordinary. In the year 1800, uh, there were about 1 billion people in the world, more than 90% of which lived on less than a dollar a day. It's higher than 90%. It's, It's hard for us to imagine how utterly impoverished the world was in the year 1800. How little most people had, even just in the way of things to survive, less than a dollar a day in contemporary terms is is almost nothing. A lot of people starved in the world. And life expectancy was astonishingly shorter than it is now. Um, Something like half what it is now. So in the period of 200 years, the the change in those statistics is mind-boggling. And what's more, in the 1,000 years before 1800, it hadn't changed much at all. That's just the way human beings had always lived. Most people struggled. Life was nasty, brutish, and short, as Lord Byron. Who was it who said that? Anyway, some famous person said. Whereas in the 200 years since then, um, not only are there six times more people in the world, six billion people in the world, but now instead of 90% of the world living on less than a dollar a day, 90% of the world live on much more than a dollar a day. And the number of people in that kind of absolute grinding, starving, awful poverty the percentage of people in the world is is vastly reduced. And not only are the 90% of the 6 billion people living more uh, healthily and, and well, they're living for longer, they're consuming and having far more products and services of every kind. One calculation I saw that tried to put a number on this is that the world is 25,000% better off in the year 2000 than it was in the year 1800. And it's, it's hard for us sometimes to comprehend the scale of the Improvement, and we shouldn't underestimate or downplay that. But at the same time, the negative, uh, negative corollaries and consequences of that project are massive, and we don't notice them because we're so kind of swimming in the improvement all the time that we don't see the things that we're losing. Yes, that's my point. I don't want to stand against progress.
1: I don't want to be Lord Ludd, you know, and the Luddites, objecting to every technological change that has happened. Um, I'm the beneficiary of those kinds of technologies, you know. In
0: the way that we're speaking to you now, for example.
1: Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> my older brother had polio. Uh, I had diphtheria. Most people never heard of these diseases today. But they were a curse. To... They were oh, a terrible curse. Yes, they were both life-threatening diseases. My poor parents had two children down with these two diseases at the same time. Either, either of us could have died with them. You know, the wonders of modern technology. We don't have those particularly around with us now, so I don't want to stand in any way against those, but I am saying every advance comes with hidden costs, with opportunity costs, with with values being changed, and that's not necessarily wrong because some of those costs are worth paying, but if they're hidden, if they're just matters of assume, then We change without realising the changes, and some of the changes are detrimental to us, but we haven't even noticed we've changed. I'm for the coffee pot. I think there's something really nice about sitting with people and sharing the same pot, be it tea, be it coffee, that we are drinking together in a commonality. Now, I know it's only symbolic, The reading of the telephones at the table is a little bit more than symbolic. I don't think you can read a telephone at the table. Well, I think that's what they... They're called telephones. They're (laughs) not really telephones. They're handheld computers. That's what we are. That's what they are. That's what they really are. Telephones, in fact, I've noticed the younger generation today do not answer the phone. They send messages on it, but they don't like having people ring. On their phone. Quite,
0: quite right. But you're right. We do have them with us at the table. In fact, we have them with us everywhere at all times so that we can be communicated with individually at any moment. Yes, which is fascinating because we're not really
1: communicating, which is we've got electronic personnel that we are in touch with and we take them everywhere. I haven't needed to take a telephone to a football match for mm-hmm. nearly all of my life. Now that I have this incredible piece of equipment whereby I've got the the libraries of the world in my pocket why do I need that at a football game what is the point of why do I need it at church I've gone to church for 70 years without one why do I now feel kind of naked and I've left something behind if I haven't got my phone and of course as soon as I arrive there they say now make sure you turn your phone off and I think well why did I bring it if it's turned off What's worse, when I get home, I forget to turn it back on again. Well, that's not worse. That gives me some peace. But, you know, what what are we carrying this equipment around for to be in communication with people with whom we're not
0: communicating? So I guess the question is, what should we do about this? If we see that technology and the prevailing individualism of our culture are kind of a marriage of great convenience, that the technology enables us to be more and more individualistic in our choices... Uh, the individualism drives the technology and is part of the reason for its success. What can we do about it? So in, in our current culture, one of the answers to the prevailing individualism is to flip to a kind of collectivism, yes. and we perhaps won't spend too much time talking about that in this particular conversation. What I mean is the rise of identity politics, the rise of, of tribal group identities. In many ways, the whole social justice group identity tribal politics kind of movement is a reaction to the intense individualism we we experience.
1: I I think that uh, Christians should be as opposed to that kind of communalism as we are to individualism. I think that the two alternatives that are presented to our society are both failures to be Christian.
0: Indeed. And it's funny how we tend to flip one side or the other. Hmm. um, It's like the silly argument between
1: socialists and capitalists. It's a silly argument because they're both greedy. You know, one's full of envy, the other's full of greed. They both have a way of trying to understand society and the world and advance things. They both fail to see that they have a totally materialistic worldview which will never work either way. Christians really can't be capitalists or socialists because we have something far greater than either of those false philosophies.
0: How would you describe, in terms of the individualism and collectivism that we're sort of opposing to each other here, and we're particularly today talking about the, the perils and disadvantages of, of individualism, and it's especially technological individualism, what's the Christian response then, if it's not to flip to collectivism? How about this for a, a neologism? We're relationalists. Relationalists. Define relationalist. What do you mean?
1: We are born, we are created and born into the context of relationships. We are made for relationship with God. We're made for relationship with each other. We find our identity and our purposes, our morality, our meanings in the context of relationships. But relationships need to be nourished as reality. It's not that we're in a commune that never communes see commune and communism are very wrong words people talk about being in a community but they're in a community that never communes that never meets with each other that's not a community that's a, a shift in the meaning of the word which is indicative of the problem that i'm talking about the, the nature of meeting with people and relating to people befriending people loving people and being loved by people that is what life is about But so much of our technologically driven individualism is anti-relationship. Indeed, we could also say much of communalism is these days too, but like you say, that's another podcast another day. The individualism is the one that you notice, that you can see, where we don't sit at the table in order to relate to each other. We sit at the table to watch television together or now to
0: read our whatever it might be we're reading. To, sc- to scroll our social media page and see it. what the latest funny thing is that somebody yeah. has, has put up there.
1: We don't necessarily even wait for each other when we come to the meal table, which, of course, when you talk about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10, waiting for one another, not one person being hungry while another person's eating too much, one being thirsty while another is is drinking too much, the nature of love comes in a meal expressed by people sharing together.
0: Because relationalism, in sort of biblical or New Testament terms, is is the expression of love for the other person that wants what is best for them, that sees all that is good for them and in them, that seeks the good for them, and therefore is always looking outward from myself to another person and to other persons. Um, that's the kind of relationalism that the New Testament kind of has. And you read 1 Corinthians, and, and especially its body imagery, that's what the body is like. It's it's where every part is concerned for the other. It's not that we're a collective, like a, a a set of units that are just in a big collective. We're all different. We're an elbow, we're a nose, we're different things, and we're all seeking the good of the other and the common good as both individuals and as a related community of people who are all caring for each other. And in a way, in a, the way the church functions, in a sense, is a great picture of what's different about Christianity. Yes, yes.
1: And I hate to continue with your view of my uh, eating and drinking habits, but, you see, I love fast food. I, I think uh, McDonald's has been a wonderful invention for humanity. <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. But of course, when you go to eat hamburgers, it's incredibly individualistic. You know you, you choose your own meal rather than eat with other people. Um, yeah, in fact, you can do it as a takeaway so that you don't even get out of your car. Now, some friends were going to a meal recently, and one came from a communal background. the others came from Western individualism. They all ate they all got their own particular hamburgers and whatever else whereas she who came from a communal background she bought nuggets to share with the rest of the table they thought it was rather strange that you buy food at a hamburger shop to share with other people because the whole nature of our fast food industry is you buy the food for yourself in fact don't take my chips you buy your own chips if you want chips (laughs) the idea that you (laughs) buy. just a big bowl of chips so that we could all share it together. That's not how it's done, is it? And I'm afraid we're not talking about sin. We're just talking about choices we're making without realising we're making them, which undermine relationship, which turn us away from it. Poor people in Sydney on a Saturday spend their time at home or with their cousins who live around the corner if they come from the right kind of ethnic backgrounds Whereas rich people in Sydney take their children one by one to violin lessons and then off to their soccer match before they take them on to... And so mum and dad are running around as courier service for children to to get their individual education, which our Department of Education is failing to give them in the rest of the week. And so the kids never actually spend time hanging around with their cousins doing nothing. the The idea of just time out to relax and to spend time in friendship, is not part of the program. That's a sad
0: loss, especially one that has not been thought about. We've talked about phones and meals and all kinds of these small examples, but what we're really discussing is an approach to all of life that prioritises what my old ethics lecturer Michael Hill used to call mutual love relationships. In fact, he used to go on about relationalism or interrelationalism, as he called it as the distinctive Christian approach to, to how we think about all of life, do that which promotes a relationship of love with other people. And if that's your ethic, as it were, then you won't go too far wrong as a general principle. And I think he's onto something. something. Yes. And so it's, it's not as if in this conversation we're wanting to necessarily just critique eating habits and TV viewing habits and so on. <laughs> but they're little examples of an approach to life that shows how things have changed and we've lost certain things or forgotten to or stopped focusing on, on relating and loving other people and become victims of, of an unspoken kind of individualism that's being promoted to us all the time. Even church-going, the
1: idea that I go to church to get something from it rather than going to church to see my brothers and sisters and give something to it. You know, church will go on whether I'm there or not this Sunday. And, you know, I I just want to spend my time going away to my holiday house up the coast or something like that. It's a failure to actually be committed to other people in their walk with the Lord. In one sense, nothing's changed. Hebrews 10 talks about do not forsake the gathering together and all the more as you see the day coming. And the problems we're talking about, it just changes. See, that's why... The Luddites are wrong. You can't just stop technology. But you do need to keep adapting to the usage of it so that you make the important things, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, as priorities. And you can always tell people's priorities by what they choose not to do. If we choose to follow individual satisfaction, we're choosing not to spend our time with other people. But if we choose other people and their needs and our fellowship with them, well then that means sometimes we won't have the latest gizmo, we won't have the latest technological improvement.
0: Well, we'll choose to use it very differently. Yes. We'll be thoughtful in the way we adapt and adopt new technologies because we'll see that there's something about the ideology of technology and the way that it works in our society that constantly drives us towards individual choice, towards seeking to satisfy an individual want. And so we'll be wary about that effect kind of having its way in our lives and we'll respond and use the technology differently as we will in all things really as Christians because that's what holiness is. It's it's living in this world differently according to how this world really is and how this world really is, is people and relationships. That's right. So instead of driving our children to school, we
1: can walk with them to school. Yeah. It's going to take half a long hour longer. Half an hour out of our day to do that. It may take longer, but you'll never know what your children think about at school if you don't walk home with them from school. The freedom of spending inefficient time with other people is an important
0: part of being human. It's very true with children. If you ask your child, "What did you learn at school today? How was school today? Come on, what did you do at school today?" Yes, you get nothing, or else a very a very brusque answer or a, or a nothing answer, it was good, not yeah. much. Yeah. They'll tell you about their school day when you're with them sufficiently long for it just to come out as it comes out yes. when they're ready to speak. And it's one small example of, of how prioritising relationship and love uh, does just change the way you, you make all sorts of little choices and it changes the way you relate to other people.
1: Yes. And my worry is that having said all this, people will go away saying Philip Jensen is against coffee
0: machines. (laughs) Well, which I know you are, but but that being beside the point.
1: But if that's what we're talking about, you have missed the point completely. You need to go back and listen again from the beginning.
0: Well, dear listener, I hope you did get the point, and I hope you'll get in touch with us uh, about this topic and tell us how, in your particular circumstance and in your life and in the kind of relationships and struggles you have, how you could adapt and use the technology that comes our way so often and all the opportunities and options that are thrown at us constantly in a way that prioritises and builds relationships as opposed to breaking them down all the time.
1: So instead of starving in living a short life, we've become obese and bored. <laughs> in a long life. <laughs> in a long life.
0: There's, there's got to be a better way.
1: There's got to be a better way. <laughs>
0: So please do get in touch and let us know what you think about this topic. We always do love getting your your feedback. And thanks once again for being with us today on Two Ways News as we sort of explored this interesting topic and thought about the way our culture and its technological advances have really changed us in ways we often don't notice. Uh, Philip, do you want to close in prayer for us?
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us. We thank you, Father, that you have made us the humans who can actually rule the world, controlling and Governing over the, the physiological nature of our world, of our bodies, of the, the technology that has been developed. that We praise you, Father, for this. We thank you that there are billions of people today that are well fed and live full lives. We thank you for it, Father. But we pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us to know the true values of life, the true worth of life that you would help us to put our faith and trust so much in Jesus that we will follow your words in knowing how best to live, loving not only yourself but our neighbour as ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen.